Yay. Thank you, Beck, for reading that. Uh, we are here as a group of people to connect with God and to learn to live a great life. That's our mission as a church. That's what we exist to do. That's, I think, the mission of every church, really, whether they know it or not, whether they do it or not. Um, and we are uh, starting to think about uh, the kind of practices that we adopt and build into our lives in order to help us do those two things. And if you recall from uh, last week, if you were here, um, I made this point that nobody ever watched their way to greatness. Like if you uh, wanted to become really good at, for example, playing tennis, you don't just watch the Australian Open on repeat and then magically become good at playing tennis. You actually have to practice and practice and practice and practice. And uh, one of the things that got me thinking about this was talking to people who do a lot of yoga. And uh, if you do yoga, you talk a lot about your practice. Now we can have another discussion about spirituality of yoga and so on. But this, this clear understanding that there's a whole practice that, that actually you weave into your life. And it's, it's absolutely the same if we want to connect with God and learn to live great lives. So what we're doing is thinking about the practice of uh, living with God. And in particular, to learn how to do life with Jesus in the kingdom of heaven. That's the essence of this life that we're to live. What Jesus has done for you and for me and for anyone who wants to participate is he has brought heaven to earth. He has brought to, in, he has made available to each of us uh, the reality of life with God in the kingdom of heavens, life the way it was always meant to be lived. And that uh, life is open to anyone doesn't matter how religious you've been, how irreligious you've been, how messed up you are, how broken you are, how, what, what kind of hang-ups and hurts and habits and addictions you might carry with you. Uh, it's open to everyone. So Jesus, when he arrives on earth as God himself come to heal and renew and redeem humanity, he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Change your mind and come on in. And he invited anyone, the super religious and the super messed up of his day to come in. And he does the same to you and to me. He invites us in. And then he says, what I want you to do is I want you to learn from me how to live. I want you to learn from me how to live this life. So this is a uh, paraphrase, the message version from Matthew 11. Jesus says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. Okay, you'll recover your life. Christianity is not a set of ideas that we agree to. I mean, it is that. It has ideas. But Christianity is a way of life, of being with Jesus. Jesus says, I'll show you how to take a real rest, walk with me and work with me, watch how I do it. 
learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Keep company with me. Like that's, that's the single most important message of this teaching series is that these practices are at their heart ways of disciplining and training and practicing ourselves so that we are intentionally keeping company with Jesus, learning from him how to live life. And, and in particular, how to live life in the, how to live your life in the way that Jesus would live your life were he living in your place. Okay, so Jesus is interested in teaching you how to be the best version of you. And the picture that I always have is, how would Jesus live my life if he were living in my place? And now I want to learn from him what that looks like. How would, how would he be a father to Oliver and Freya? How would he be a husband to Margot? How would he be the pastor of this church? How would he be a neighbor in Roselle? And so on. And when I look at you and you online, I think that's the question, right? When you go to work tomorrow, how would Jesus do your job if he were doing it in your place as you? Uh, and these disciplines are about learning from Jesus. They're not about earning his favor. One of the potential downsides of uh, practices like this is we think, and this is very common, and you may already have thought it, you may have thought, oh, well, here's just a whole lot of stuff now I've got to do in order to earn God's favor, in order to make myself acceptable to God. That's not right at all. Uh, everything we have, this invitation into the kingdom of heaven is a gift. You can't earn it. But once you've received the gift, you put effort into living it out. Effort is uh, not opposed to grace or gift. Effort is opposed, is, uh, effort is opposed to, uh, earning is opposed to grace. Effort is not opposed to grace. We don't earn the kingdom of heaven. We receive it. And then we embed it in our practice so that we can learn to live life, which just seems incredibly obvious. Uh, the Apostle Paul put it this way, train yourself to be godly. Train yourself like actually, you know. Um, we all know what that's like. So uh, we're, doing, uh, we're doing an introductory introduction to this. Uh, and these practices, and they're around the acronym worship. And this comes from, I had about 30 of these five years ago. We've given them all out around church. This is a, a really great little book called The Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. And it's a, it's a handbook of the practices that transform us. And uh, there's a whole bunch here. You can buy it from Kurong. You can get it from Amazon online, or you can borrow one of the copies we've got. Uh, and it's full of these uh, practices and many of which you can experiment with and try. And uh, Adele Alberg-Calhoun, who wrote this, organizes these practices around this acronym, Practices of Worship. We looked at one of these last week. Practices of opening myself to God, relinquishing the false self, sharing my life with others, hearing God, incarnating the love of Jesus, and praying. Today, we're looking at the practices, the practice of opening myself up to God. Uh, and um, Nehemiah strikes me as a great example 
of this. Uh, a great example of this. But, uh, and, and so what do we see in Nehemiah in chapter one? We see uh, a man who is, uh, we see that opening up is characterized by these things. Uh, you see desperation. So the context of this little chapter in Nehemiah that was read for us is that uh, Nehemiah was a prophet. Uh, he was a leader of God's people. Uh, Israel, had, God's people had been taken to exile. They'd experienced a national calamity uh, of an of a unimaginable scale. Imagine if we were invaded by, pick a belligerent neighbor, Samoa. I'm avoiding ethnic stereotypes here. Um, picked a very, imagine if New Zealand invaded us. Let's go with them. Imagine if New Zealand invaded and New Zealand became very aggressive. Uh, Jacinta realized her goal in life was world domination. Uh, so the New Zealand Navy all got in their rowboats and they came across the pond and uh, they invaded and they conquered Australia because we couldn't believe it was possible. Uh, and uh, and so they, they invaded us. And then imagine if they destroyed all the key cultural and physical icons that made us uh, great. You know, um, they blew up our coffee shops. Uh, they closed Bondi Beach down. They uh, put a, you know, doubled the tolls on the Harbour Bridge. And uh, they put the New Zealand flag on the Opera House. And then they took, they took all of us into exile uh, in New Zealand. And, uh, you yeah, and they made us live in some terrible place like, Queenstown. Um, and, uh, and it was awful. Actually, I'm realizing this analogy doesn't work because actually Babylon was terrible and you're all now thinking, oh, I'd just be skiing and it'd be fantastic. Um, but I didn't want to stoke the fires of racism by mentioning countries where this might actually be a possibility. So um, imagine that. And this is what had happened to Israel. They had been taken into exile, not by a, a friendly neighbor with good ski slopes, by an awful pagan uh, neighbor uh, of Babylon. And they, they're in Babylon. The temple is, has destroyed. The wall has been pulled down around Jerusalem. And, uh, and it's in this experience of desperation that Nehemiah opens himself up to God. He, he has heard what has happened. He's the cupbearer to the king. That means he's riding close in the court of Babylon. And, uh, and these people come back about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And he asks about Jerusalem. And they said to him, those who survived the exile are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and it, its gates have been burned with fire. So this is an experience of the absence of God. This is an experience of, of devastation, of suffering, of heartache that is unimaginable for us. Unless you've been driven out of your country and lost everything, which I don't think any of us here have experienced. You, you can't begin to imagine the desperation. And it's this is the context where he is. He opens himself up to God. And the first thing he does is he prays and he seeks God. And I want to say the discipline of being open to God is the discipline of allowing God to meet you in the night. To allow God, as C.S. Lewis, Lewis says, God whispers to us in our comfort and our pleasure but he, he shouts at us through a megaphone in our pain and suffering. 
So there is something about allowing the inevitable heartache and suffering and challenges and pain of life to drive us to a place of desperation where we open ourselves up to God. I see sometimes, and this can be hard, can't it? Because sometimes when we go into a place of desperation, we can, we can actually turn away from God. We can close ourselves off from God because we can go, God, you've... I, I can't believe in God anymore. Look at all this horrible stuff that's happened to me or to someone I love. Of course, mostly we don't have any trouble believing in God when it's other people who suffer, but it's when we suffer that suddenly we have these great challenges of faith. And they're real for sure. But if you actually want to encounter God, if you read the Bible and if you interrogate your own experience and that of God's people for three and a half or 4,000 years, you'll discover you are never in truth more open to God than when you find yourself in a place of desperation. You have nowhere else to turn. And then you cry out to God. You cry out to God like he did. If you want to be open to God in that place of desperation, you have to feel the feels. You have to feel the feels. What do I mean by that? Um, look at what happens. His, Nehemiah's first response, when I heard these things, uh, I got a group together. We practiced positive psychology and uh, positive thinking. We visualized uh, how everything was going to be just fine. And uh, we got together and we organized and we planned. We did a Gantt chart of how we were going to project management, the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Uh, we organized a political lobby group and we paste, posted lots of upbeat social media images to uh, communicate a carefully crafted and curated version of ourselves to a watching world. That's what he did. It's clear in the Hebrew there, you can't see it, but that's actually what it says. You know, under those, this translation's terrible because when I heard these things, I sat down and wept for some days I mourned. Like, who wants to do that? But if you want to be open to God, you actually need to be open to the full range of human experiences, including mourning and grief and bewilderment and and loss and heartache and we don't like those feelings who no one likes those feelings but but that's those feelings like that's what you do you if you don't feel those feels you won't ever really encounter god because you're cutting yourself off from the reality of who you are and who god is in the place where you'll find god can i tell you what terrifies me about feeling horrible feelings. Uh, I feel like if I feel those things, they will overwhelm me and crush me. I had a very vivid image many, many years ago. Uh, I was probably 19 and uh, I had I had just found out, I thought my father had died and, and he hadn't, and he just disappeared off the scene. He'd been in jail and then he disappeared. And in a chance series of events, I was up in the north of the country and I, and I heard that my father was still alive. And, um, and, I, and it, just, it just 
it just uh, provoked and unleashed this whole amazing storm of feelings in my desperation. And I remember having this picture of like a the little boy with the dike from the from the you know Dutch stories, keeping your finger in the hole in the dike, and if you take your finger out, the water will come through, and then the dike will collapse, and then it'll be a disaster. And I remember this picture sitting on my bed at two in the morning, going, "I've got my finger in this hole, and behind that wall is just an ocean of pain and suffering and heartache and feelings that if I let go for a moment, I will drown." And God said to me, it's okay, I've got you. And I did. And I, and I didn't drown. I cried and I cried. But I didn't drown. You see, uh, you've got to feel the feels. Those feelings, grief, loss, trauma, heartache, these things are a, a tunnel we go through, not a cave that we get stuck in. The fear is it's a cave. It's a deep, dark cave of misery prompted by the desperation of our circumstances. And if I, get, if I feel, if I go into that cave, I'm never getting out. And God says, it's a tunnel and I'm in there with you. And if you feel the feels, you'll find me. <laughs> That's what Nehemiah does. He just sits and he weeps, and that's okay. That's utterly appropriate. And don't we have a lot to weep about in our culture, in our world, in our lives? And it's all right. We, we won't. Now, maybe I'll just a word to the blokes here. I've been reading a fascinating book on by an evolutionary biologist on friendships and how we all do relationships. And, and he has an interesting observation anthropologically that men really don't cry that much. We actually just don't. Like, it's really interesting. I felt guilty for years that I don't seem to cry that much. And actually, across all cultures, when you study men and women as a, as a biological anthropologist, you realize women cry more, men go out and kill things and hunt and gather and solve problems. We, we actually just seem to cry less. Now, obviously, that's a general distribution. And so there are obviously some women who cry less than some men who cry more. But in general, men, just because you might not cry as much as the women in your life doesn't mean you should not feel the feels. Because they're there. Life is as hard for us as blokes as it is for any woman or child. We just have to find gendered ways of feeling the feels, of being open and honest and sitting and weeping and mourning. That's what he does. That's the start. That's how you open yourself up to God. And then, and then the practice, it takes time. This is perhaps one of the greatest challenges we have is actually encountering God takes time and uh, in the inimitable words of the lady who was interviewed, whose response did the rounds as a meme, ain't nobody got time for that. You might remember that from a couple of years back. Ain't nobody got time for that. Who's got time to be sad? Who's got time to mourn? Who's got time to sit and weep and fast and pray? 
Well, we did in lockdown. <laughs> but have you noticed how busy everything's getting again? It's nuts. I mean, I didn't, there were parts of lockdown I really enjoyed. Like no one wanted to see me. <laughs> Has it changed? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they wanted, I didn't say they enjoyed seeing me. <laughs> they, but isn't it got, and we just get busy. And you know what? We are very good at solving problems as a human species being made in the image of God. We're incredibly good at, at solving things and changing the world. And so when, when we face a problem, we typically move into solution mode. But if you want to encounter God, if you want to open yourself, open yourself up to God, it's going to take time. And this goes back to what we talked about last week with Sabbath. Time to pray. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but for a lot of my life, I've thought prayer is basically a waste of time. I'm, I'm sure this shocks you because I'm professionally religious. I'm sure you all think when you, when you think of me, you think, oh, there's an amazing man of prayer. He's one of the great contemplative saints who exudes a quiet stillness. His face glows from being in the presence of God all the time. I, I know that's how you think of me. Um, <laughs> a part of me is just like, it takes too long to pray. Like, okay, God, fix this now. I'm going to fix it. Isn't that how we tend to work? Uh, what I've, what I, and I've always known in my head that's not true, but in my heart, I want to move to start fixing things because I want to feel like I have control and I want to feel like I can make life work. And, um, and that's really quite dumb because I mean, I, I have control over some stuff, but the stuff that really matters, I don't have control over, like you, people I love, actually big chunks of my own health and the health of those I love and the world. And so, so you know what? I've, I've got to talk to the God who has control over these things. Who's, and so, so prayer is incredibly valuable. When Rolf had the idea that we should meet on a Wednesday night every week and pray uh, and seek God, I thought that was a brilliant idea for someone else to do. I mean, I still, like an, an hour, it still feels like, oh, every Wednesday, what, every week? Like, and then I stop and I think, well, it's one hour of a week to meet with a bunch of people to talk. About. That's nothing. But it feels like I could be doing something more useful, watching Netflix. I mean, uh, you know, looking at spreadsheets um, takes time. Turning to... Uh, it also involves being open to God is the discipline of turning towards God. Turning towards God. So uh, here's some research from uh, marriage and family therapists, uh, John and Julie Gottman. John Gottman, you, I'm sure some of you have come across. If you haven't, Google John Gottman. Uh, phenomenal research on what makes relationships work. And the most significant predictor of a marriage that will last, uh, and, or the alternative way of saying it, the most significant predictor, an accurate predictor of a couple's likelihood to end in divorce is how they respond to each other's bids for connection. Okay, so a bid for connection is you're sitting having, uh, uh, you're sitting having breakfast and you're reading the paper and your partner says to you, Ah, did you see what's happened to Gladys? 
Berejiklian in ICAC. Okay, now that's a bid for connection. They're making a comment. Now, what are you going to do with that bid for connection? You can ignore it. Okay, just you can turn away. You can actually literally get up and leave. Just ignore, turn away. So you can ignore, you can turn away. You can turn against the person and, and actually get angry with them. Don't interrupt me. I was just, you know, about to put this bacon and eggs in my mouth. And now I've got to think about the foul taste of ICAC and the kangaroo court that it is. And you're a terrible human being for messing up my tranquil breakfast. You could do that, okay? It's, normally, it's not quite that aggressive. Gottman says that you can do those things. And, and if, you, if you ignore, you turn away or you turn against. Uh, if couples have that as a pattern, um, they're, they're most likely going to be divorced uh, within five years. Um, and it's, they're not big things. It's the patterns in the little things. And he says, well, actually, what you need to do is turn towards your partner when they make a bid for connection. Ah, did you see this about Gladys? Yeah, it's pretty messed up, isn't it? That's it. You've just turned towards them. And it's an accumulation of the turning towards your partner when they make a bid for connection. Recognize the bid for connection, turn towards it. If you're turning towards your partner right now or putting your hand on their, uh, on your, on their knee right now, you can just turn towards them and squeeze their hand a little bit. That's a turning towards. God's a person. <laughs> Good on you, Matt. I saw that. Yeah, awesome. Oh, well done, Penny. Yeah, look at you guys. Um, I thought that's true in friendships, in the workplace. It's true between us and God. God makes bids for connection. He, he wants to be in our lives. Will we pay attention to those bids or will we... And when God does want to enter into our lives, will we ignore him? Will we turn away from him? Or will we turn towards him? Nehemiah turns towards God. In the middle of his desperation, God comes to him. How did God make a bid for connection with Nehemiah? Through the messengers who came from Jerusalem. And what did he do with that message? Well, he turned towards God in prayer. Now, uh, in your discussion groups, we got you to talk about the question, when do you feel most alive? Why did I do that? Why did I pose that question to you? Well, one of the reasons is the practice of being open to God is being open to God's bids for connection and his presence with us in the day-to-dayness of our lives. And and actually paying close attention to what's going on in our world is a way in which we can start to recognize God's presence in our lives and his bids for connection. And to, to recognize in these moments of, of aliveness, of joy, that, that God is there asking us to recognize that he's with us and that we can turn towards him. And, and when you had a great time, uh, I loved what Rolf said, you know, meeting with friends, talking about life, and then you recognize there's a prompting from God that you should pray for revival, so you stop and you pray. It's a brilliant little example of turning towards God as you think about God, and he, he tries to connect with you in the midst of your friends. You know, if you felt most alive, some, you know, just, just God is coming to you 
and wanting to connect with you through your friends, through this church, through creation, through ideas, through books, and, and allow the, the ways in which God wants to connect with you, to move you, to turn towards him in prayer and worship. And just, yeah, wow, Lord, you're here. So when, when you're looking out, we went to Manly and had lunch and you know, Margot went for a walk and I went for a swim and sat on the beach and just looked out over the water and I thought, God, you're everywhere. It's just beautiful, right? It's just, I think creation is God's, it's just a bid for connection everywhere from the creator. So turn towards God. And it requires honesty then. Honesty, um, no pretense. The, he goes straight into um, uh, you know, as he turns towards God, he goes, yeah, and we have really messed up and we don't deserve this. There's, there's honesty about his own contribution. He's not blaming other people. It's interesting, he's not having a crack at the Babylonians. Oh, Lord, these Babylonians, they're responsible for all the misery in my life. And that's our tendency. Everyone else makes us miserable. We're responsible for our, we bring, when things go well, it's, we're responsible when things go badly. It's someone else's fault and I'll blame other people. And, and actually being open to God is saying, yeah, man, I'm, I'm a mess. I've sinned. I'm not the man I want to be. I'm better than the man I used to be. And I'm nowhere near the man that God will one day make me to be. But I'm not the man I want to be. And, and, I, and I'm honest about that. And I don't hide from that. And I bring those parts to God and I go, yeah, oh, geez, Lord, not again. Ah, oh. oh, I take responsibility with great searing honesty because I know that God loves me. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's the next bit of the honesty. He goes in to talk about the God who really is there. This is not an abstract, impersonal God. Uh, he confesses the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, laws you gave your servant. And then he goes, remember, he says to God, remember what you're like, God, you promised to forgive if you are unfaithful. God said to Moses, even if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. You know what that means? That means as I'm honest with God, I can come to him confident that no matter what I've done, he's going to gather me in. Where's, where does his, where's the dwelling of his presence, of his name? That's another way of talking about his kingdom, which was located in Old Testament times in the temple. But now the kingdom is a spiritual reality, the kingdom of heaven available to anyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And what God is saying is no matter what you've done, I'll draw you in. I'll draw you into my family and you'll be part of my family forever. So just be honest. You have to pretend, repent, and come and be healed. That's what it is to be open to God. Now, of course, um, you may be sitting here going, yeah, part of me really wants this. <laughs> and if you're honest, a part of me wants to run a mile from God. Because all this sounds like an awful lot of hard work and and maybe really scary, and, and maybe, maybe you struggle to open yourself up to anyone. And that's, that's, so what do we do with that? Well, 
you just acknowledge it. You go, okay, there's a part of me that's scared. I mean, aren't you a little scared of opening yourself up to God? I mean, what if he asks you to be a missionary to deepest, darkest Africa? That was always the thing that would scare people when I was, which was funny because we were living in Africa. <laughs> Hang on, how does this work? What if he asks me to forgive my enemies? What if, he, what if I open myself up to God and nothing changes? What if he doesn't come through for me? What if my life still sucks? What if it's still painful and miserable? What if he doesn't fix my marriage? What if he doesn't sort my kids out? Well, yeah, that's true. What if that's all true? And that part of you, you just, you just look at that, talk to that part of you and go, yeah, I get it. I get it. There's a part of it, part of me that feels scared and there's real risk. But I think there's a part of us that is just deeply hungry to be open to God. So lead with that part. Feed that part. Lean into that part. Say, okay, that's it, Lord. I'll, I, this part of me doesn't, but, but really in my heart of hearts, I, I want to be open to you. And, and then practice the disciplines, the practices that allow you to be open to God, to take time to feel the feels, to be honest, to repent. Pay attention to his bids for connection and return towards him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we sit and reflect on this, I pray that you'll help us to have the courage to be open to you because we know that you love us, to turn towards you with honesty and realism faith. I pray that you will speak to us and bless us and assure us that we're forgiven, assure us that we're wonderfully made, assure us that there is nothing waiting for us but grace and acceptance and mercy and joy and healing when we turn to you, when we're open to you. And I pray for each of us this week that day by day, moment by moment, you'll just give us the courage to open ourselves up to you, to respond to your bids for connection and to, um, to live lives that are open. And I pray that you'll do this, not because we deserve it, because you know we don't, but because we need it. And, uh, and our lives, when they're closed off from you, are so much less than they should be. So come, Lord, uh, do this, I pray in your name. Amen. We're going to wrap up. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Thanks, guys. And uh, they're going to, we're going to worship together. They're going to sing. We're going to sing along with our inner voice. And uh, it's the, they're going to sing the blessing over us, which is a wonderful, wonderful uh, blessing from the book of Numbers, the ironic blessing over God's people. And, uh, and then Liz will wrap up and the kids will come back and we'll have morning tea and hang out. <laughs>